0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 39, 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed.
1: Thanks be to God. I'm going to tell you what, on the weeks, I said this last week, but on the weeks that we decide to have our kids join, we keep hitting, the, it's never, it has not been so far, it has not been something that you're going to find in the children's storybook Bible. Uh, we're going to try to navigate to this story uh, as PG as possible once again, uh, but if you've been with us, we have been going through uh, Genesis over the last Oh goodness, something like 20 plus weeks uh, in our series called In the Beginning. And here's one of the things that's pretty striking about the entire series, but uh, especially this portion uh, of scripture once again, is that throughout the series, we've seen something uh, over and over again, specifically that the Bible is painfully honest, uh, authentic, realistic about the experiences, the desires, the pursuits of humanity. And this story of Joseph is another very relevant example of how the scriptures speak to our own experiences. And in particular, the phenomenon known as temptation. Temptation toward that which we ought not to do. Uh, Something that often comes to mind uh, that uh, related to temptation are the the words of Paul. Remember in in, uh, Romans seven, where he says, for what I want to do, I do not do but what I hate, I do. I mean, that is the nature of temptation, to know that we ought not do something, and yet, for some reason, feel this pull toward it. And so what I want to take a look at today, uh, see what we can learn from Joseph and the wife of Potiphar uh, and their experience of temptation and how we, uh, as a result of some of the things that we'll learn through the story, can actually resist and defeat the temptation that will inevitably befall all of us. And so to understand what we can learn from the story, Let's consider three things. Uh, the tension in temptation, uh, the battle in temptation, and then finally the defeat of temptation. Okay? So first, the tension in temptation. So let's catch up a little bit in the story. Uh, in chapter 37, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we began the story of Joseph. His story largely begins when his brothers, who out of hatred for him, sell him into enslavement in, in Egypt. Now, here in chapter 39, we pick up the story of Joseph once again, and uh, we see his placement in the house of Potiphar. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Potiphar, but what we do know is significant. Uh, Potiphar, it says, was one of the uh, Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard. Now, that position is described elsewhere in the Old Testament, and based on some of the ways that we see the Old Testament to describe it, he was likely much more than just a soldier But rather, he would have been something like a very powerful general, maybe even comparable to our joint chiefs of staff. Uh, Very powerful, very wealthy, and in particular, someone you did not trifle with. But Joseph, uh, who's now working in the home, actually becomes this very trusted servant to Potiphar. And in verse 4, we see the extent to which he is trusted and some of the consequences as a result of that trust. It says that Potiphar put him in charge of his uh, of his whole household and entrusted uh, to his care everything that he owned. And then it goes on to say that the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. There was a lot of successes going on here in this story. But amid that success, Joseph, of course, is confronted with temptation that very well could destroy everything that he's built. Uh, We're told here that Joseph was a well-built and handsome man. One of the things I find interesting is sometimes we get into like original languages to try to see what is really meant there. That's pretty blatant. He was a good-looking kid uh, who was very well-built. And as a result, Potiphar, or the wife of Potiphar, desired him. And in our passage, uh, it says that she took notice of him and said, come to bed with me. Now, as we've uh, repeatedly seen, whenever we see this kind of language being used, uh, this language is actually kind of cleaned up a bit in our uh, English translations. Uh, the original wording, that that's exclamation point that we see uh, in the, uh, at the end of that sentence, that exclamation point is actually indicating very, very strong language, very direct language from her, meaning she's not asking a question. She is demanding something from Joseph. And this is consequential because... Of course, there's a very real power dynamic going on here. Uh, We often see examples throughout the Bible uh, where men tend to be in these positions of power, subjugating vulnerable women, and let's be honest, whenever we see uh, sexual exploitation, more often than not, men are the culprits of that sexual exploitation, and we've seen that happen over and over again already in our passages. Uh, in Genesis. But of course, that's not always the case. Uh, Women can also be the instigators or perpetrators of sexual exploitation. And this is a great example. We see it here. She has power and she is using it in her demands. Now that power is, again, very consequential because what that power does is it creates a bit of a complexity here for Joseph. This is not just a temptation toward sex, as many maybe assume it to be. It's certainly that, but there's more going on here. Because there's a couple of things that could happen for Joseph in the midst of this temptation that sits before him. If he goes along with her demands, not only would he be con- uh, committing a sexual sin with her, but he also knows that he'd be putting his job and maybe even his very life on the line. Like I said, his husband, or, uh, her husband is not someone to trifle with. But on the other hand, this, this woman is also the wife of someone with great power, and as a result, she has great power, does she not? If Joseph could appease her and keep it quiet, that might actually bode well for him. He might find himself in an even greater position. It would just take for him some sexual morality, a little bit of deception, but nonetheless could actually benefit him if he goes along with this. And here's why I start here. It's because everything about this scene shows how complicated temptation can be. There's various levels of temptation going on in this one story. You know, sometimes, for us, maybe we're more like uh, Potiphar's wife. Maybe at times we're tempted to use our power or our influence to benefit ourselves, even if it means at times exploiting or using others. This happens every single day somewhere. Someone is using their power or influence to benefit themselves, exploiting others at the same time. There's another example or layer of uh, complexity here. Sometimes maybe we find ourselves more like Joseph. We're tempted to fall into unrighteous behavior because to do so might actually provide some kind of immediate satisfaction that would take place, like sexual satisfaction or long-term successes with, with work. And sometimes we are tempted toward something that we know is not right, but we think that we have no choice, and so we just go along in order to preserve what it is that we already have. We have a way out, but we choose to not take that way out because we think if we don't go along with it, then it will not ultimately bode well for me in the long run. Temptation is temptation because it always offers you something, right? We're not tempted toward things that we do not want. Temptation always gives us something that we do desire. The problem is that temptation always makes us think that we cannot have that fulfillment or that experience or whatever it might be, that we cannot have it unless we succumb to temptation, unless we succumb to pursuing those things in an unrighteous kind of way. And the problem with temptation is that it's always going to offer us far more than it actually gives us, which is what we begin to see in this story. i me mean, just give you some examples. These are going to be examples that we're going to use over and over again throughout uh, the rest of our time together because not only do we see them here, but they're also so common amongst us. You know, if we, if we give in to our sexual uh, inclinations or desires, the temptation promises us that we'll find some kind of relief or fulfillment. You know, that their t- temptations uh, rest around telling lies. You know, if I, if I lie, then I'll be in the clear. If I exploit a person, I can advance my career. You know, if I keep those shady business practices around me going, or if I just dabble in those practices myself, then I can create career success for myself. If I don't do what I know is not right, even if I could do otherwise, I'll do what I shouldn't do because in the end that might mean if I don't do it, then I'll lose my job, or I might lose my friends, or I might lose some measure of success. I mean, in the end, temptation always promises us something, promises to give us what we desire, or to preserve what we have, and that's what makes temptation so tempting. It's dangling something in front of us. And I also want to note here that the temptations that we see over and over again that become most dangling in front of us, the thing that we tend to pursue most And scripture is very clear about this, but our experiences are also very clear. The root temptations that we will see over and over again are going to be around sex, money, and power. Almost all temptations in some way point back to those temptations. Those temptations are from which so many other temptations flow. You know, when something's going to like really take us down, I mean really upend our life or create problems for us, So often, it's going to return back to one of those three. Sex, or money, or power. We all know, right? And even as I'm talking about all this, I think many of us could probably identify the thing that seems to be most tempting to us. I think all of us could admit there's certain temptations within each of those that we can admit or acknowledge. For many of us, maybe there's one in particular that tends to drive you. But I think the bottom line is simply this. We all understand that temptation exists. We all understand that there is something that we desire that we are compelled to pursue, even if it means at times pursuing it in ways that we know are not right. Whether we're a Christian or not here, we all have that sense of right and wrong. We all have a sense that there are certain things that we should not do in order to pursue that which we desire, which then leads us to the second piece. Well, if that's the case, If it's the case that there is something that we desire and there are bad ways to pursue it, how do we resist that temptation? How do we battle it? Well, Joseph, back to our story, Joseph is presented with a very complex situation right, that we have here in front of us. And he essentially comes down to two conclusions as to why he is not going to capitulate to the temptations that are in front of him presented by Potiphar's wife. The first one is in verse 8. I just want to throw that up. In verse 8, it says this. This is one of the reasons why he resisted. But he refused, saying this. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. In other words, Joseph's being realistic. I could lose my job if I pursue this and I allow this temptation to overtake me. I cannot possibly do this with you because it would jeopardize everything that I have built here. It's a a very pragmatic reason. I don't wanna lose what I have and so I can't do this thing with you. But though that is some part of it, right? Some part of the reason why he won't pursue this is that his job could potentially be at stake. It's actually not the primary reason why he resists her advances. What are the primary, What's the primary reason? We'll look at uh, the second part of verse nine. It says this, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? Who does he say? To sin against Potiphar? I mean, that would certainly be something that he'd be doing. To sin against Potiphar's wife? That could certainly be something that he would be doing. But no, what's the reason? He said, how could I do such a, a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. For Joseph, the main motivation, the main strength in his battle against the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife was first and foremost, that if he was to submit to this temptation, he'd be sinning against God. Now in my own uh, personal experience as a Christian, but also as a pastor, I actually think this is a very overlooked reality in us when we are dealing with temptation toward sin. Meaning, how often, when tempted to do something that we should not do, is our first instinct to say, No, I cannot do that because it would be a sin against God. I mean, more often than not, our stated motives when we resist temptation usually begins with the consequences of those actions. Too often, that becomes the motivating factor as to why we resist, if we do resist. Examples, you know, I some may be tempted, or might be tempted uh, toward an affair, and so the the reason why one might not want to have an affair is because I'll lose my family, or some might say I'm not going to engage in shady business practices because I might get fired, or uh, I. If I I won't uh, overdrink because if I overdrink then I might get drunk and I might end up losing control or I won't overeat because if I overeat I'll become gluttonous and then I'll get heart disease and die or maybe even like seemingly religious kinds of things you know if I'm if I'm not generous and I'm greedy then God's not going to bless me and so that's the reason why I give I better be nice because if I'm not nice people won't be nice to me in other words we come up with these different scenarios where I resist doing what I know I shouldn't do because I'm afraid if I do those things, there's some kind of immediate consequence that's going to come. Now, all those things are really important to consider. We need to keep the very tangible, pragmatic, practical consequences of sin in mind when we're being tempted. Joseph understood that if he fell into this temptation, it would impact very practical things for him in life. And that's not a bad thing. We should absolutely have those consequences in mind. But having those consequences in mind is very different than having also this ultimate consequence in the front of our minds, that if I engage, for example, in sexual immorality, or if I use shady business practices, or if I over drink, or if I'm not gen- generous, or if I'm gluttonous, whatever it might be, you know? if I'm not kind to people, not loving toward people, That first and foremost, I am sinning against God. And here's why that's so important. For that to be on the front of our minds when resisting temptation is because any other motivation will eventually wane. It will not actually give us the strength that we need for the long haul. And it will wane because too often, when we create other uh, types of resistance, other than this primary one about God, we will end up creating justifications that slowly erode our certainty that the temptation is worth resisting. The path toward grievous sin is almost always a path paved by little justifications that over time lead to complete moral breakdown. Again, let me give you some examples. Sexual sin expressed physically almost always starts with justified sexual sin of the mind almost always and it's so much easier to justify exploitation or wrong business practices are almost always first justifiable gray areas that maybe seem like they're probably legal before they turn into full-blown exploitative schemes a lack of substance control is almost always A hundred justifiable, smaller decisions that over time lead to me going a little bit further, having a little bit more, a little bit more. I mean, similarly, gluttonous tendencies are almost always the justifiable accumulation of just eating more and more and more until I lose complete control of myself. A lack of, of generosity is almost always small decisions of prioritizing self before it becomes on greed. I think you get my point. The point being that our motivations, if our motivations, are not rooted in the fact that our sin is primarily a sin against God, we eventually will fail in resisting our temptation because along the way, there will be a hundred justifications for why it's okay to fall into temptations. And before we know it, we've had complete moral breakdown. But all of that, of course, assumes that we understand that what we're doing is sinning against God. I mean, why is it, first and foremost, all the things that I just described, a sin against God? Well, the entire notion of living in particular ways assumes that we ought to live in those particular ways. Now, just explain what I mean. You know, Sexual exploitation and sexual immorality assumes that there's actually a proper use for sex. Domineering power dynamics assumes that there's actually a proper use of power. Ethical and moral business practices assume that there is actually a proper way to deal with money and resources. Substance abuse or overeating assumes that there's a proper way to control how we satiate our physical needs. And so the question is, who gets to determine what is right and wrong in these areas? Who gets to decide how things ought to be in all of these different areas? And here's the bottom line. If we give ourselves the authority to decide how things ought to be, we will have definitions as diverse as the people in this room. We will always have different understandings of how things ought to be, and so who's to say how things ought to truly be? But when we recognize that God is God, and he is the one who determines that which is good, right, and true, now we begin to see how temptation actually works. You know, again, for example, when we recognize that our bodies have been created by God, we will then understand that we are to use our bodies in particular kinds of ways. When we recognize that every good gift, including our jobs and our resources, is given by God, we begin to see how we ought to use those resources, our careers. When we realize that power and influence is given by God, Then we begin to understand how we ought to use it in certain kinds of ways. Then we begin to realize, in the end, that resisting temptation is not primarily about experiencing the immediate consequences of that potential sin or failure, but rather it's primarily about a belief in God as a sustainer, the creator, the giver of all life. And here's the bottom line. Every temptation to sin is fundamentally a temptation for us to be our own God. That's what temptation is. Temptation is calling you to leave the creator God and instead make yourself a God. The reason this matters is because if we do not see our sin primarily as a sin of rejecting God as God and instead desiring to make our own gods, then we will never take our sin seriously enough to actually resist it. When tempted, we are being asked, do you believe God is God, or do you believe yourself to be God? That's the fundamental temptation. Now, that's one way to understand it. I do want to speak to another way to understand this, one that also kind of resonates with me. Uh, You know, for me, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a pastor's home in the church in particular. And so I grew up in this context where I very much understood that sin was in some way a sin against God. And some of us here, we may very much, everything I just said probably resonates with you, right? You you connect that, and if I sin, I'm sinning against God. But here's what I find to be another kind of fascinating, interesting approach to this. Often, we approach temptation as a sin against God... But then we kind of flip it and we expect in some way that our obedience or our resistance to temptation ought to then merit some kind of reward. Here's what I mean by that. We expect to be rewarded or blessed because we obeyed God. In other words, there's an expectation that righteousness and obedience means that God kind of owes me for having done things his way. You know, for Joseph, he might very well have expected God to bless him for his acts of resistance and his desire to obey. But what happens as a result of his righteousness? Instead, his righteousness in this story doesn't make his life easier. It actually destroys everything that he had built. The very thing that he was trying to protect, which was the life that he'd built, was destroyed because of his pursuit of righteousness. Of course, the story that we just heard, Potiphar's wife having been rejected she lies about Joseph, Joseph claiming uh, that he tried to force himself on her. Potiphar, the husband, is rightfully enraged by this accusation and throws Joseph into prison. His life, as he'd know it, known it, is completely ruined because he had opted toward faithfulness in God. Now, we have the foresight, I understand, to know how God is going to ultimately unfold the story. But think about how Joseph must have been feeling in that moment that because he had pursued righteousness, now he was going to be thrown into prison. For him, his life was completely upended. And for many of us who have existed in contexts where obedience is tied to an expectation that life is gonna work out, there's a very real disorientation when life doesn't work out the way that we think it should. Again, this is very personal for me. It's also been something that I've processed with many as a pastor. You know, many times, hearing thoughts or or having thoughts or hearing certain variations of statements like, I did everything I was supposed to do. Why did God allow this to happen to me? Or, I did everything I was supposed to do. Why is God not blessing me? Those are very common statements, common postures. But that posture, friends, if you find yourself in those kinds of rhythms, reveals something in us that is similar to the desire to just be our own God. Because it reveals that our obedience was not about honoring God, but rather it was ultimately about trying to put God in my debt. It was a pre-quo-quo. God, I'll obey you, but then you need to give me what I want and what I desire. Again, examples that we've been processing already thus far and that I've heard over the years. You know, God, I will not have sex until I'm married, but just know I expect a spouse for that faithfulness. Other examples, I won't watch pornography, but I expect, God, that you're going to ensure that I'm sexually satisfied. I won't be exploitative at work, but I expect to climb the ladder as a result. I'll be generous, but I expect my generosity to be returned to me tenfold. I will live my life for you, but I expect no tragedy to befall me. Frankly, that's a very common posture to fall into. But in the end, It is functionally the same posture as before. It's not God. You are God, and I will trust you in all things. Instead, it's God. You can be God to the extent that I deem it appropriate because I actually know better about what I need, and I need you to fulfill those needs. Again, it's making ourselves God. We put ourselves in the position of God. So with all that in mind, if resisting temptation is about honoring God and acknowledging Him to be God, not ourselves, but for Him. How do we actually get our minds around that idea? How do we actually reject the whole notion of the the fundamental foundations of, of temptation, which is our desire to be God? How do we break through that temptation and instead truly begin to see God as above all else, the one to whom we want to give our whole lives, genuinely trusting Him, honoring Him, above everything else. How do we get there? In that sense, how do we defeat temptation? Let's look at that finally. You know, one of the best illustrations that I've heard about resisting temptation uh, that we've, we've used here before, but it's rooted in a story from uh, book 12 of the Odyssey. Maybe some of you have heard this before. But in that story, we are told of these uh, alluring sirens, creatures that would uh, that were often depicted as half woman, half bird, who would sing songs so beautiful that they would lure sailors to the rocky sh- uh, cliffs where they resided. And as a result of of luring these sailors, the ships would hit the rocks and they would sink the ships. Knowing this, uh, Ulysses. Uh, devises a plan to resist the coming temptation of these songs as they passed by these sirens. What he does is he commands his crew to plug their ears with beeswax and to bind him with ropes to the uh, ship's mast. And as they passed by these sirens and as these beautiful songs began to sing, he told them, no matter how much I plead with you to untie me, don't untie me. Every time I beg, just tie them even tighter. All of this, for him, was a way of keeping him from steering the ship toward destruction. This was his way of resisting temptation, which was to be bound up so he couldn't turn if he wanted to. Now, that is certainly one way to resist temptation. And friends, for the record, you will almost always need some plan when resisting temptation, whatever your temptation might be, you're going to need some plan to bind yourself to the mast. You will almost always need some accountability structure to keep you from falling. You will almost always need people in your life uh, who are encouraging you toward righteousness and away from the destruction uh, of the temptation at the rocky shore. In fact, if at times that is just like all that you can muster in resistance against uh, temptation, do it. Right? It's not bad to bind yourself in this way, creating those accountability structures. Whatever it takes to allure, uh, the songs of the sirens do it. But we must also recognize that those accountability structures will almost always inevitably be insufficient. Why? Because whatever structure we create will inevitably have some kind of loophole. Uh, The friends that we ask to be our accountability, eventually they're going to have limitations not being able to actually help you sustain your resistance. We need something stronger, something that goes beyond just sheer willpower of ourselves or of others. What is that? What is that power that we can have to defeat temptation? Well, again, one of the best examples that I've heard uh, about this was from a pastor named Thomas uh, Chalmers, a Scottish Presbyterian preacher in the 1840s, and one of his uh, famous sermons, uh, in the thesis of his sermon was simply this, and here's the point. That the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. Right? Hear that again. That the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. In other words, our desire for sin, our, des- our temptation, is ultimately rooted in our affections. Right? We'll p- we're pulled toward that which we find beautiful. The beautiful songs of the sirens are beautiful, even though they will eventually lead to destruction, we're still nonetheless pulled toward that beautiful song. And so the question of course becomes, what is it that we find beautiful? That's pulling our affections toward the rocky shore. But see, if we're gonna ultimately defeat the temptation, toward what we find beautiful. We actually need new affections. We need our affections captivated by something more beautiful than the allures of the siren. We need to hear a song more beautiful than the songs sung by the siren. We need a love that transcends the love that we possess for anything else that this world might be able to offer. And that love, friends, that love is a love that does not come from the confines of this world. Because we are loved with a love that transcends and outshines all other love. A love that sings a song far more beautiful than any song this world might be able to sing. John 3.16, of course, famously says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. 1 John 3 tells us this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 John 4 tells us that we love because he first loved us. The love of God in Christ is a sacrificial, merciful, compassionate love that transcends whatever kinds of loves might exist within this world. And it's a love that transforms us deeper and deeper as we let that love sink in to our hearts and into our affections. The more we allow, allow that love to impact our affections, the more we see God in Christ as beautiful. The more and more we can resist the alluring songs of the sirens. Why? Because the Lord, in his love for us, sings a far more beautiful song. As I was preparing for this, uh, a passage came to mind uh, for me that, um, as I was preparing, it actually left me in tears as I was reading the passage. It's a beautiful passage in Zephaniah 3. Maybe you know it. In Zephaniah 3, uh, we see God looking upon Jerusalem, in particular looking upon our restored Israel after their exile. And as he looks upon his people, it says this. It says that the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior, warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you, In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. It's a song that the Lord sings over his people. The love of God for his people is a love that leads him to sing over us. And his song is a song of great joy and great delight and great rejoicing his redeemed people. And friends, the melody of that song that's being sung The melody is Jesus. And so I wonder, do we we hear that song being sung? And is that song to us more beautiful than the songs, the alluring songs of the siren? Is it a song that leads us not toward the rocks of temptation, but toward harbors of safety? Because that's the song the Lord sings over us. And so my prayer would be that we hear that song of Jesus being sung over over us that we might then, as a result, keep from sinning. May that song remind us of God's beauty, God's love, God's affection for us. May that song remind us that God is God, that we are not gods, and may that become, in the end, our power to resist and to defeat the temptation that comes. Do you hear that song being sung over you, one of great delight? of great love. Allow that to become that which is beautiful in your ears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you look upon your people, you find great delight and joy. As you look upon your redeemed people, a people that have been redeemed by the work of Jesus, we can, we can know that you sing a song of great affection over us. Lord, I pray that as we sail in this life and as the allure of the sirens come, as the, the song that seems at times to captivate our hearts pulls us toward the rocky shore, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would allow us to hear a more beautiful song a song whose melody is our Savior, Jesus. And may that song pull us away from those rocky shores and into your safe harbors. Keep us, sustain us, empower us to live our lives, not for ourselves, believing ourselves to be God, but empower us as a result of this great love, this beautiful song, to live in a way that honors you, that recognizes you as being God the giver, sustainer of life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for
0: listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.